Luke 8, 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had, only, had, had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Now let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we ask you for help. Lord, it is a remarkable story. And one that we are amazed at. The Father, we pray that as we see Jesus revealed here in this passage, that you would stoke the flame of our faith in our hearts. And Lord, that you would make him real to us, so real, Father, that we would know what he says is true and that we would know that he is the same one that can save us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in our passage here at the end of Luke chapter 8, there is a woman who has suffered for 12 years, and there is a 12-year-old girl, a daughter of the synagogue ruler, who dies. The woman and the child are unrelated as far as we know, but um, one of my friends, uh, who is the senior pastor of an evangelical free church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and who's a couple years uh, younger than I, um, 
he's experienced in his short life both the death of his first wife and his first child. Uh, Jake uh, met Tristan while in college, and uh, then they were married when uh, I was um, in my first year of seminary up in Sioux Falls. Uh, Tristan had been diagnosed with cancer just before they got engaged. Uh, the prognosis for her was not good. They decided to get married anyway, and by God's grace, her cancer was under a period of remission through uh, their wedding and the first few months of their marriage. Um, but as cancer tends to do, it uh, came back and came back with a vengeance, and before they could celebrate their first anniversary, she was gone. Uh, Jake and his wife had been students at Sioux Falls College, which was uh, located right next to the campus of Sioux Falls Seminary, uh, where I was a student at at the time, and it seemed like just everyone knew about their story, and so when she died, grief just came over almost everyone on both campuses. We just all thought this just is not right. You know, sickness and death should not have been a part of their story at such a young age. The next year, Jake joined me at seminary, and he began to train for the ministry, and we began to hang out a lot and I, I had known him and a couple of uh, uh, other members of his family uh, from working together with them at Hidden Acres Christian Center, which is uh, the Free Church uh, District camp uh, in, the, in the Central District in Iowa. And uh, Jake is about as nice of a guy as there is. They, they don't get much nicer uh, than Jake. And I really enjoyed uh, spending time with him, taking classes with him, and studying the Bible together with them. And, and then about, about a year after I graduated seminary, Jake met Caroline. And Caroline was from Switzerland, and they then got married a little over a year later. And not long after that, Jake began serving in the church in Cheyenne. And we were excited to hear that they were expecting their first child. Um, but then a tragedy struck again, and, and, and they went in for their last checkup uh, before the baby was due, and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And the baby had died basically at, at uh, full term, uh, a son. And once again, Jake's family and friends grieved with him and all wondered why. You know, this just wasn't right. How could this happen? And friends, the world that we live in is is obviously a troubled world. Our, our country was reminded of that once again last weekend with, with two more mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. You know, things like that shouldn't be happening. I mean, but who can stop it from happening? You know, who, who can we look to for help? Who can we turn to? Obviously, there is no authority strong enough wise enough or powerful enough in our country to prevent violence like that from happening or to prevent sickness like cancer or to prevent the death of children. But when we open up the Bible, what we actually see revealed here in the Scripture is someone who can do something about it. Someone who has done something about it. 
and someone who will one day put an end to it all, all the suffering, all the destruction, all the death. It will come to an end by the authority of this one that we see revealed to us in the Gospel of Luke. So our main theme from this passage this morning is that in the midst of a troubled world, we are called to believe that Jesus will make all things right in his time. It'll be in his time. The passage comes at the end of a section where Jesus has traveled back and forth across the lake of Gennesaret, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee, and Luke has shown us how Jesus has displayed his authority over the weather by calming a storm at sea, by just speaking, by just commanding the wind and the water to be still. And then we were then shown the authority that Jesus had over demons and all spiritual authorities as he commanded a host of demons to come out of a very troubled man. And the Lord completely restored that man's life back to health. And so now here, at the end of of Luke 8, we are shown the authority that Jesus has both over bodily sickness and death. And these are two miraculous works done by Jesus to two different people. But as you heard the passage read before, you know, you can, you can see how these two relate to each other. And, and, and therefore, I believe that they must be addressed together. So first, we're going to focus on two desperate but different people who come to Jesus. The two desperate but, but different people who come to Jesus. Verse 40 through 43. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had, only, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though... She had spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. So the first person we meet who comes to Jesus is named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. Uh, Although Luke doesn't tell us, this this probably is referring to the city of of Capernaum, which was was located on on the lake and was kind of a base of operations for Jesus. So this would mean that, that Jairus was a ruler or a leader, um, you know, some translations even call him uh, the president of the synagogue in Capernaum. Synagogues were not run by priests or the Sanhedrin, uh, but by local Jewish men in the community. Um, often the, the leaders of the, of the synagogues were also Pharisees, but, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, they, they served a similar role to the role of, of, of a deacon, um, or maybe uh, the church board chairman or, or church board leader, uh, like in, in, in churches like ours. Uh, they made sure the building was taken care of and that the services were organized and they would line up the men who would, uh, who would be reading the scriptures uh, each week in the service and they'd invite others to speak and, and teach from the scriptures. So, so Jairus was most likely well known in the community and very well respected. He was probably well aware of Jesus and Jesus' ministry. And just like pastors, you know, aren't immune to suffering, as is the case of my friend Jake, synagogue rulers in Jesus' day 
weren't immune to suffering either. For here we find out that, that Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, an only child, was dying. And Jairus, uh, this important, highly respected member of the community, comes to Jesus in desperation. And Jesus willingly goes with him to save his, his, his little girl. Now you know that, that I am a father of four, and, and Esther is my oldest, and she's 12. So when, when I read this about you know, Jairus and having a 12-year-old daughter, I know exactly, exactly what, what that's like. And it's also very easy for me to remember what it was like when Esther was just two, because I have Betty, who just turned two, on Friday. So let me tell you, there are times when I begin to think about others who have experienced what Jairus here was experiencing. And I am overwhelmed with gratitude to the Lord for his grace that my children are all, are all healthy. But if any of them were in a similar situation to this 12-year-old girl here in our passage, I think I would respond just like Jairus did. I would desperately go to anyone who could help and, and plead with them, plead with them for their help. And that is what we see this highly respected, honored man in the community doing with Jesus. He, he bows down before Jesus. He humbles himself before the authority of Jesus and begs or implores Jesus to come to his house to help this little girl. And so Jesus goes with him. And on the way, of course, we meet the second person who comes to Jesus for help in this passage. She is, is like Jairus in that she is also desperate. We, we see her do a similar thing to Jairus in verse 47. You know, she also humbly fell down before Jesus. He, she bowed herself before him, recognizing Jesus' great authority compared to her lowliness. And we're not given her name. Nobody knew her name. Everyone knew who, who Jairus was, of course, but nobody knew who this woman was. She was not a well-respected member of the community. She was most definitely on the other end of the spectrum from where Jairus was. She was an outcast. While Jairus was looked up to and honored and invited to the main social functions in Capernaum, this woman had to stay away from people. She had to stay away from people. She could not participate in the social life of the community. She was considered unclean. That's what we read about uh, in the law in, in, in Leviticus 15. Any woman with a discharge of blood was considered unclean, and everything that the woman touches, including other people, would have also been considered unclean, unable to appear before the Lord in, in worship, unable to join together with, with other people in the synagogue to hear the scriptures read. And anyone who's unclean then would be unable to participate in the social and religious life of the community. So while Jairus here was the ruler of the synagogue, this woman would not have even been allowed to even enter the synagogue. For the past 12 years, that has been the case. Again, the same number of, of, of years as Jairus has had a daughter. And so like Jairus, she is also desperate, so desperate that she risks being 
reprimanded by others in the crowd by, by working her way through the crowd in order to get close to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior for the poor and the rich alike. He is the Savior for those who rank high in social classes as well as those who are outcasts and looked down upon by all. Both come to Jesus here looking for salvation. Salvation from their own desperate situations. And Jesus is willing to receive them. He's willing to help them. But the question still remains, can he help them? Will he be able to save them? Well, that's leading into then our next passage here, verse 44 through 46, where we see two different hopeless conditions which are no problem for Jesus. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now the woman's condition was, was fairly hopeless. She had, she had done all she could to get help. She had spent all her living on physicians, it says, but to no avail. They were not able to help her, uh, even with uh, massive gains in the understanding of, of medical treatments and health care that we have today, as well as an unprecedented you know, te technology that is being used to diagnose and care for the health of those in need. There are still many cases where people go to doctor after doctor without any conclusion of what's wrong with them, of how to treat it, of what to do about it. And they were there referred to this specialist and then to that specialist, and still no one is able to give them a clear and confident diagnosis. Some of you may, may know how frustrating that can be. Well, imagine how frustrating and heartbreaking it was for this woman. In the Gospel of Mark, in his account uh, of this same uh, story, he describes her situation in, in chapter 5, verse 26, as she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So the woman shows her, her desperation here in this encounter with Jesus. This scene with Jesus that Luke describes kind of reminds me of seeing you know, news clips of movie stars you know, trying to make their way uh, through uh, a crowd of fans and paparazzi photographers, maybe on a sidewalk in front of a hotel, or as is often the case, maybe in front of a courtroom uh, that they've had to appear in. You know, you, you, you just see this, this mass of humanity trying to, trying to press around them just to get close enough to touch them or to have, have them acknowledge the, the people in some way. And, and th this past Wednesday even, this past Wednesday, I went to, or sorry, Thursday, it's on a Thursday, this past Thursday, I went to the uh, teammates' luncheon at the VFW here in town where the most respected and admired man in all of Nebraska spoke, the great Tom Osborne. And I went to the luncheon, heard him speak, I was impressed. Then after it was over, I thought, you know, thought about going over and, and, and shaking Tom Osborne's hand, you know, just so I could tell my friends back in Iowa that I really, I really did meet him. Um, 
But as I thought about that, I wasn't the only one that had that, that idea for all of a sudden a pretty good crowd you know, formed around him fairly, fairly quickly. And I decided, well, you know, I'll just go home. It's not, it's not worth it uh, to, to wait around to just shake, shake his hand. I, I wasn't that desperate to meet him. <laughs> but think about this woman here. You know, pressing her way through this crowd of people. Persistently moving towards Jesus. She's, she's getting bumped. She's getting elbowed. She's getting, she's getting pushed and, and she's getting cursed at as she, as she persisted to make her way through this crowd to get close to Jesus. Not so she could talk to Jesus. Not so she could get a selfie with Jesus. Not even so she could, she could meet him. She did all that with the hope and the belief that all she would have to do is touch him. Just even a fringe of his garment. And she'd be healed. She had faith that Jesus could heal her and, and that all she would have to do is touch a bit of his clothes. And she does. And immediately she's healed. Now, uh, this is similar to how quickly the wind and the waves stopped at Jesus' command in the boat on the lake. Luke uses the, the, the same word as he used earlier. Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately. She knew she had been healed by Jesus. And immediately, the woman realized that with Jesus, her hopeless condition wasn't so hopeless after all. She also realized that because of Jesus, she was given her life back. Her place in society would be restored. She would be back in fellowship with her family, with her friends. She could now go and gather together with God's people in the synagogue to hear God's word. Jesus had not just healed her broken condition, he had restored her broken life. This woman came to Jesus as an outcast, as an unknown, but Jesus did not want her to remain that way. So he stopped. And he asked, who touched him? Of course, this amazes the, the disciples because, I mean, everybody had been touching him. Everybody had been pressing in on him in the crowd. But Jesus had a special purpose here with this. He wants this woman to be known, or maybe more specifically, he wants this woman to know that she is known, that she is known and loved by God. So even though I'm sure she was afraid, and I'm sure she would have much rather, you know, just kind of snuck away and not drawn any attention to herself at all, Yet, she still speaks up. And what does she do? She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She tells her story and how Jesus saved her. She just stood up and declared, like the man who had been oppressed by the legion of demons, all that the Lord had done for her. This is a lot like what all Christians do when they are baptized. We just simply stand up before a few people and tell them what Jesus has done for us, how Jesus saved us. And so again, if you are someone whom Jesus has saved, if you have come to have a saving relationship with Jesus, 
but you haven't publicly professed that before the church and in, in, in baptism, let me encourage you to do so soon. You know, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to have a baptism service before it gets cold. But while all this was going on, some messengers came before Jairus's, came, or came, came to, to, to Jairus from his house, and they came with the worst possible news. While he was away trying to bring Jesus to help her, his daughter died. Maybe, you know, if Jesus wouldn't have had this woman stop him, maybe they could have made it there on time. We, we, we don't know. But while he was away, while he was trying to get Jesus to the home, to his daughter, his daughter dies. And maybe the saddest part about, about that message was he wasn't there. He wasn't there. When his daughter breathed her last breath, her father wasn't there beside her. And so now they're telling him, look, you don't have any reason now to trouble the teacher. Um, you know, after all, she's dead. Uh, there's nothing more that can be done now. Um, the situation had turned from being desperate to now being hopeless. They had hope that Jesus might be able to heal her while she was still alive, but now that she is dead, all hope is gone. And we can sense this great tension of all hope being lost when Jesus comes to the house and speaks to the people who were there, uh, the mourners. I'll read that. Now, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child and all who were weeping and mourning for her. But, but he said, do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, not knowing what, she, what not knowing, or knowing that she what that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, "Child, arise!" And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So there's this great tension. He he comes up upon these the, these people that 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 that. That's in verse 52, all were weeping and mourning. So there's these, these, these mourners. Whenever someone died in, in Palestine at this time in history, there would always be mourners, usually women, who would come and gather around the, the, the home of the family, and they just wail and wail. This was a very public society, and with Jairus being someone who was a little more well-known and respected in, in, in the community, there were probably quite a few who would have gathered uh, there to mourn and wail over the death of this 12-year-old girl. If something similar would happen in our community, there would also be many who would mourn and grieve with the family. We would just do it, you know, not so much publicly, but, but more, more so privately. Jesus tells them not to weep, for he says the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laugh at him. They laugh at him. They, they mock him with their laughter. She really is dead. They knew the difference between a body that is sleeping and one that is dead. And they're, they're mocking him. This, this situation really is hopeless. But Jesus was not showing his ignorance when he told them not to weep because she was just sleeping. 
Jesus was not telling a lie either. Jesus was just saying the girl was asleep because he was about to go into the house in order to wake her up from death. Just as easily as a father would go into his daughter's bedroom and wake her up from sleep. He even says the same thing many of you have probably said to help your kids to wake up and get out of bed. He says, child, arise. You know, come on, it's, it's time to get up. Let's go. Let's get out of bed. And we are told the girl's spirit returned to her. She was really dead. And Jesus had caused her life to return to her. Jesus had just done the impossible just as easily as a father would wake up his daughter from a nap. So Jesus, this is some, friends, this is something that we should be amazed at. Jesus has just brought back to life a little 12-year-old girl that was dead. Right at the moment that everyone believed that all hope was gone, Jesus shows up and pours hope and thanksgiving into the hearts of every family member of this little girl. So finally, we are to trust in the the one Savior and Lord who can and will make all things well in his time. Verses 48 through 50. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. When we read these amazing works of the Lord Jesus, one response that can creep up inside of us is a similar desperation as that of Jairus and the woman that are, are, uh, we, we, we learn about here, we're shown here. For we wish that Jesus would heal us like he does here, or we wish that Jesus would have saved our loved one from having to die, or would bring our loved one back to life like he does here. I'm sure my friend Jake felt similar times of desperation while his first wife was dying of cancer and he was reading his Bible, seeing what Jesus can do. When his first child died in the womb at full term, These are sad, sad realities that we have to endure in this broken world. It is the same broken world that Jesus was walking in and doing each of these amazing works in. We are living in the midst of hard times of suffering for many people. As one hymn puts it, the dark shadow of death still looms over every home. It can really seem hopeless. But we must not lose hope. Luke is showing us in his gospel that there is indeed hope for for all who look to God and place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed king whom the Lord had sent to save and to restore his people. And when Jesus healed as he does here, when Jesus cast out demons, when Jesus stilled the storms and calmed the sea, when Jesus restored to life sons and daughters of believers who had put their faith in him, 
he was revealing to them and to us that that is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what he has come to do. Jesus has not just come to save us from our sins, but to save us and to restore us from all the awful, terrible consequences of sin in our world. He will alleviate all suffering from God's people. He will restore the lives of all of his broken people. He will make all things well for those who put their hope in him. He will do what right now seems impossible. He will raise up the dead to life. He will remove all suffering, all pain, and all trouble from the world. The Lord Jesus will recreate this world and make it into our eternal home, a world without sin, a world without death. So do you believe that? Do you believe that? Is that what you are putting your hope in today? We have to admit, it's hard to believe in that, isn't it? Especially in this very cynical culture we all live in. It will be a challenge to hold on to that hope while our culture laughs at us and mocks us. You know, so take note of what Jesus told both the woman and Jairus of what is most necessary for them if they were to experience salvation. They must believe, they must trust him, they must have faith in the impossible. Look at verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And verse 50, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. My friend Jake, probably this very morning, is still proclaiming that it is incredibly good and wise to place your trust in the Lord. He has the hope that one day he will get to enjoy his first wife and his son in a far better way, in a far better world. He believes Jesus when when Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, and all will be well. My question for you is, do you believe that? Have you placed your hope in Christ alone for your salvation? If you have, then God's word promises you that one day all will be well. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a full salvation. Ours all will be well. We expect a bright tomorrow. All will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. All is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus, every need supplying. Yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continue to just work the truth of this word in our hearts. Lord, root it in there deep for us. For we need hope in days like are described here in this passage. We need hope in the day of death. We need hope to get through years of suffering. We need hope, Lord, when things look hopeless for us. So Father, help us to see Jesus, to know who he really is, and to put all of our hope and trust in him, that he will make all things well in his time. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.